I'm very excited today that we're starting a new series leading up to Easter, until Easter Sunday, called Rooted Disciples, and it's following this book by John Stott, The Radical Disciple. It's his last book that he ever wrote, so it's the final words of John Stott, and it is an excellent read. I've I've had it a long time, so I'm really looking forward to spending the next few weeks looking at this series that we're going to be looking at. Ben's going to introduce the series and preach to us a bit later on, but I thought I'd just read, just to whet your appetite, some of the comments by other people at the beginning of the book. This is a farewell book by one of the giants of our generation. John Stott outlines eight key aspects of discipleship with piercing clarity. Somebody else writes, This book is a vivid demonstration of the simple tension at the heart of the gospel, that we are challenged to carry the cross daily, to walk the narrow path, and yet simultaneously be promised that the yoke of Christ is easy and the burden is light. And then finally, someone has written, Jesus doesn't simply tweak our lives. He rebuilds them from the foundations up. Here is the book that inspires us to embrace deep conversion. I quite like that expression at the end, that this is a book that inspires us to embrace deep conversion. Wouldn't that be fantastic over the next few weeks if we can truly go deeper in our conversion and be further rooted in Christ? As we start the series and today's service, shall I just pray for us? Thank you, Jesus, that you call each one of us to know you, to follow you, and to be your disciples. We ask that at the start of this series and today that you will work in us as individuals and as a church to transform us into the people that you want us to be. We pray that you will be with us this morning as we listen to your word and to worship you. We pray that you will draw close to each one of us and that you will be glorified. Amen. So today, as Graham says, we're starting our series. It's actually our Lent series. I realise it's not Lent yet, though. We've not had any pancakes yet. I also realised that we started our Advent series early as well. Uh, You can't get enough of a a penitential season, in my view. Um, (laughs) So this is the Lent book. John Stott, in case you don't know who he was, He was, I think, uh, one of the greatest Anglican leaders of the 20th century. He was vicar for many years, or rector, or whatever he was, of All Souls Langham Place down in London. And I think he's probably one of the greatest evangelical leaders of all time. He was an incredible man. He taught about creation care before it was trendy. Hooray. He was a big bird watcher. He's even written, he wrote some books about birds as well. He argued that Christians should listen to culture, but not be led by it. And alongside his firm commitment to biblical truth and holiness, he was full of God's love, gracious, kind, and sensitive. And I think we can all learn from one or maybe both of those aspects of John Stott. These are the last two books he wrote before he died, The Living Church and The Radical Disciple. They are deceptively simple because following Jesus isn't complicated. It's just not easy. (laughs) Now, the sharp-eyed among you, if there are any of you, will have noticed that our series is not called The Radical Disciple. It's called Rooted Disciples. Anyone notice that? One or two of you. 
Now, in his introduction to the book, John Stott explains that he uses the word radical in its sort of original meaning. The word radical comes from a Latin word, radix, which means root. So he doesn't use it to describe an extremist, but someone whose convictions go all the way down to the roots. He also refers to the parable of the sower, uh, where the word lands on good soil, puts down roots and grows strong and bears much fruit. So my prayer over these next weeks is that we will all become more rooted. Disciples, all the way from the branches to the roots. Rooted in Jesus, so we can bear much fruit. I hope the second word is a little less difficult, disciples. I much prefer it, actually, as a word to Christian. It's used far more often in the New Testament to describe Jesus' followers. and In fact, it's the word Jesus himself uses to describe the people who follow him. Now, I was always taught to begin with the conclusion. So I'm going to begin with the way John Stott ends his book. These are the final words in the conclusion. And I hope that we can keep these words in our minds as we explore what it means to be rooted disciples over the coming weeks. We cannot conclude better than to hear and heed the words of Jesus in the upper room. John 13, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Basic to all discipleship is our resolve not only to address Jesus with polite titles, but to follow his teaching and obey his commands. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages round Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in in exchange for, for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, 
in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we give you thanks for these words of Jesus given to us through Mark. And now we pray that you would help us to listen, to hear, and to heed what you would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. David Hasselhoff, the Hoff. In 2006, he was thrown out of Wimbledon because he tried to barge into the tennis player's bar to get himself a drink. He'd been drinking all day. And as he was escorted out by security, he yelled, all I want is a drink. Do you know who I am? That is very much not the way Jesus asked his disciples in verse 27, who do people say I am? And then in verse 29, what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? I wonder how you would answer that question. Notice the question isn't about who Jesus actually is. That we don't get to decide for ourselves. Jesus is God's one and only son. He is the savior. He is the Lord. Jesus didn't ask, who am I? He already knew that. No, he asked, who do you say I am? It's a personal question. It's subjective, not objective, if you like that sort of thing. What we think of Jesus doesn't affect who he is, but it does affect the way we respond to him. Take Peter. Uh, Verse 29, uh, Peter steps up and he answers, you are the Messiah. It's a great answer. Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek are the same word. They mean the same thing. Peter was saying that Jesus was anointed and chosen by God for a purpose, like the prophets, the priests, and the kings of old. Sounds great, but the devil was in the detail. Immediately, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then after three days rise again. Now, I can understand why Peter didn't like that. I can understand why the disciples didn't like that. I can understand why Jesus told them not to tell anyone. Because in those days, everyone thought the Messiah was supposed to be this strong, all-conquering leader. The Messiah was supposed to be like King David, strong in battle, mighty to save. The Messiah was supposed to come in glory and majesty. The Messiah was supposed to win, not die. Peter used the right word, Messiah, but he meant the wrong thing. And so, verse 33, he was rebuked by Jesus in the harshest possible way. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was rebuked, but he wasn't rebuked for being wrong. He was rebuked for not listening. If you look at the previous verse, verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly about this. The NIV sort of misses out a bit. It says Jesus spoke the word plainly. He was teaching them God's message 
He was teaching them the gospel, and he was teaching it plainly. So Peter's sin was not listening. Peter's sin was insisting that he knew better than Jesus. That is no small error. It is to act as God's enemy. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Satan stands opposed to everything of God. Let that sink in for a moment. When we refuse to listen to God's word, when we act as though we know better, we are on dangerous ground. It is not a modern problem. It's the definition of sin, pride and rebellion against God. It's serious stuff. I feel sorry for Peter. Some people think that Peter was one of the sources of Mark's gospel. If that's true, it shows how humble he was and how much he came to understand later that he allowed that to be in Mark's gospel. Slight change of tone. Why did the Egyptian refuse to believe he was drowning? Because he was in denial. You are so fortunate that there are not more denial puns in today's sermon. Just that one. If you missed it, you can listen later. It's well worth it. Not. Denying myself is not something I'm very good at, which is why I've put on a stone and a half since I arrived here. But that's not the self-denial Jesus is talking about. Now, I've already asked you one question this morning. Who would you say Jesus is? Here's another. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's one of those words used in the New Testament quite a lot. But what does it mean? It wasn't a word Jesus invented. It wasn't a concept he invented. Uh, It was quite common in those times for a teacher, a rabbi, to gather around himself. I'm afraid it was always himself, ladies. uh, To gather around himself a group of followers who would learn from him. So a disciple is, first of all, someone who learns. But Jesus made it more than that. When he called the 12 disciples, that bit wasn't unusual. His choice of people was perhaps a bit unusual, but the fact that he did that was pretty common. But then Jesus made something new out of it. And rather handily, the Bible records for us what he said, so we know what it means for us to be disciples as well. Turns out... Jesus' disciples, well, they learn from him like all disciples, but they also follow him as leader and as the pattern or model for their own lives. Not as an all-conquering war hero, but as the one who died to give us life. Verse 34, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves And take up their cross and follow me. If you forget everything that comes out of my mouth this morning, remember that verse, Mark 8, 34. Let's take those three things one at a time. First, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. There isn't much in the Bible more countercultural than this. Certainly not today. The world says, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Express yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself if you want to be my disciple. This is about more than giving up stuff for Lent, which hasn't quite started yet. (laughs) Although fasting is a bit like exercise that sort of helps us build up our self-denial muscles. So if you're struggling with self-denial, maybe think about fasting on something for Lent. The physical fasting helps us with our spiritual life. 
Self-denial, though, is not denying something to yourself, but denying your very self. Self-denial is not denying something to yourself, but denying your very self. This is so countercultural because Jesus and the world disagree on the state of the human heart. In our culture, it stands for who we truly are. So the highest good today is giving people the freedom to follow their heart, to be themselves. And anything that stands in the way of that must be bad, with a capital B. In the Bible, it's more complicated than that. It's a lot messier, but I would say a lot more true to my experience of my heart. I don't know if any of you watch The Repair Shop on BBC. Anyone like The Repair Shop? Yes, I am an old fogey at heart. I love The Repair Shop. (laughs) Wasn't very nice, was it? (laughs) Like I say, this is a lot more true to my own heart. I love The Repair Shop. It is probably one of my favorite ever TV programs. I love watching the skill of the craftswomen and the craftsmen as they take, I can't remember the exact words from the introduction, faded and broken treasures and make them beautiful again. Uh, Often people come in and they they try to have a go at repairing something themselves. Uh, Jess and I watched one last night and uh, it was some uh, boxing belts that a a Tongan heavyweight had won, 1950-something or whatever, And he'd tried to repair it with sellotape behind. So uh, um, Susie had to unpick all of this sellotape before she could repair the belt. So very often the expert's first job is to unpick the repairs that someone's tried previously. Friends, this is a picture for exactly what God does with us. We are like the things people bring to the repair shop. Broken, ripped, Sometimes the paint is peeling off. Some key parts might be missing. Our own repairs that need unpicking. So God can mend us properly. Denying ourselves is a form of dying. Dying to the pretense that our hearts don't need to be repaired. Dying to the pretense that we can repair it ourselves. Dying to the pretense that we aren't deeply broken and damaged by sin. Because unless we deny all of that, unless we deny ourselves, unless we die to the pretense that we don't need repairing, thank you very much, we will never come to God's repair shop. We will never ask him to save and heal us. We will never truly live. Jesus' disciples live, but only by dying first. Next, back in verse 34, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, we all have our cross to bear. You heard that one? Comes from this verse, doesn't mean what this verse means. We mustn't domesticate this verse. We all have our cross to bear means, I don't know, something like have have patient endurance, grin and bear it, stiff upper lip and all that. How good we are at watering down the Bible. As Jesus spoke these words, if someone had walked past carrying a cross, they would all have known exactly what was about to happen. And it wasn't stiff upper lip. It meant cruel and painful execution. 
That is what it meant for Jesus himself. So here he teaches that the life of a disciple, like his own life, will be cross-shaped. What does that mean? Well, for some disciples down the ages and still today, it does mean death. It does mean paying the ultimate price for our faith. I hope you pray for our sisters and brothers around the world who are facing situations like that every day. For all disciples, it means sacrifice. Stepping out in mission is costly. It means dying to personal ambition, setting aside our own plans, our own desires, and putting Jesus and the gospel first. Often it means mockery, challenge, rejection, opposition. Jesus taught that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it produces nothing. But if it does, it produces a huge crop of seeds. From John chapter 12. Mission is cross-shaped. God never promises immunity or deliverance from persecution. Paul knew that. In fact, almost all of these early disciples and apostles, they knew that. They were not immune from persecution. They did receive some deliverance, but many of them were ultimately killed for their faith. God doesn't promise immunity or deliverance from persecution, but he does promise to be with us always and ultimately to give the crown of life to those who keep going. Revelation 2 verse 10, Jesus says this, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus' disciples live, but only by dying first. Finally, back in verse 34, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must follow me. You good at following instructions? No? Ever tried to build something from Ikea? A man arrived in A&E with horrible burns all over his feet. How did this happen? asked the doctor. Well, the man replied, the instructions on the can said, before opening, stand in boiling water for five minutes. (laughs) Who do you follow? Who do you follow? I read the news a lot, not always in a healthy way. I confess I am a doom scroller. I support Liverpool FC, sort of. I keep an eye on technology and software developments. More seriously, in the rather blunt words of the Book of Common Prayer, I have followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart. I follow some things half-heartedly, some things too much, some things not at all. What do you follow? The sort of following Jesus has in mind here is like following a guide up a mountain. Somewhere you've never been before. You have to trust that they know the way better than you. You need to stay close to them or you end up getting really quite seriously lost. Following Jesus is about who's in charge. As a Christian cliche, I'm sure some of you have heard it before. Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. Who's in charge of your life? Really? Following Jesus means not letting our sinful, proud, rebellious hearts rule the roost. It means not indulging our broken and damaged desires. 
It means ignoring those things that our itching ears are desperate to hear. It means listening to Jesus instead. It means listening to the words of Scripture God has given to guide us, to teach us, to inspire us, to rebuke us. It means hearing and heeding, as John Stott says in his conclusion. The world says, I did it my way. Jesus says, follow me. It's not complicated, but neither is it easy. Following Jesus means, by definition, not following me. To follow Jesus into abundant life, we have to die to our stubborn insistence that we know the way. We don't. Sorry. The Bible holds out a wonderful picture of beautiful and glorious life. How much we want that. How much we long for the peace and the glory and the beauty of life with Jesus. God's life is there for all, all who die to themselves, who let go of what we have so we are free to receive what God has for us, which is better by far. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus said, must follow me. Now, I've been pretty negative about the human heart this morning. In an attempt to try and make the point that Jesus' disciples can only live by dying first to all of that stuff, can only live by coming to God's great repair shop to be restored and forgiven. There is much in our hearts that is damaged and broken, but there is also much good in there. We are not all bad. Well, some of you. We are masterpieces, precious, loved by God, badly in need of repair. In Malachi, God is described as a refiner of gold and silver. Now, to refine a precious metal, the refiner takes the metal and places it into a crucible and then puts that over a high heat. If the metal had feelings, oh, it would hurt. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of degrees centigrade. As the metal melts and as the refiner stirs, all the impurities, known as dross, start coming up to the surface where they can be removed. And the refiner repeats this process until he's finished. And do you know how the refiner knows when he's finished? It's ready when he can see his face in it. It's ready when all the dross is gone and it gleams and it shines and he can see his face. That is what it means to be a disciple. It is costly and it is a long journey. Jesus is patient though. He doesn't expect us to get there all at once. He doesn't expect us to get there immediately. But the more we die to ourselves the more we receive his abundant life, the more we will reflect the glory in the face of God. Amen.